Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. Mara Dolan, a public defender who has also worked in democratic politics, is the only candidate challenging an incumbent governor's counselor this year. She is running against Councilor Marilyn Devaney in District 3, which includes Mara's hometown of Concord and the surrounding suburbs. Mara, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Shira. So what made you decide to run for governor's council? Well, I am a public defender, as you said. I've been a public defender for 15 years, and I've worked in Worcester and Lawrence and Springfield and Superior District and Juvenile Courts. And I think that the work of the Governor's Council is incredibly important. We don't elect judges in Massachusetts, and that's a very good thing. But we do elect the people who choose them. Those are Governor's Counselors. And they also choose who serves on our parole board and who receives a commutation or a pardon. So as a public defender, I know that no matter how much work I do on behalf of my client, if they don't go before a judge who is the best possible person uh, to hear their case, then all the work that I do can't do as much as our laws intend them to. So I wanna be part of that decision-making process and that's why I'm running for governor's council. And you're a Democrat, you're running a primary campaign against another Democrat. Why are you a better candidate than the incumbent? Well, the incumbent has been in for 23 years and I don't have a problem with that. But in those 23 years, she has not once done what I have done thousands of times, which is stand next to a defendant in a court of law as they face a judge. It is essential to the governor's council that we have someone who's working in our court system every day and understands the issues that we face there. And that's why I'm the better candidate. And the governor's council, as you said, is a very important body in that it vets and confirms judicial nominees. But our governor's council has also become known for other things, like its very contentious meetings, its members name calling and disrespecting each other. There have even been calls in in respectable media organizations by respectable candidates to abolish the governor's council. Is this a problem and how will you change the culture of the council? I have, of, cu- of course, heard all those things. And there was a recent uh, story by Jean Tronstein in Dig Boston that was pretty, um, that shed quite a light on a recent governor's council hearing. Mass Lawyers Weekly uh, ran an editorial not long ago calling for the abolition of the governor's council. And they just published a letter that I wrote to them uh, this week, basically saying, no, this is a constitutional office. It's been around since the 1600s. It's older than the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And in its, in its current form. And it would be very difficult to get rid of the governor's council for that reason. But the fastest, most effective way to improve the governor's council is to elect the best people to serve. With everybody going remote, um, the governor's council was actually the first of the state's public bodies to stop its live stream. Um, I think it ultimately did then restart it after some outcry, but do you believe that governor's council meetings should be live streamed permanently? Absolutely. They're, They're public meetings. They're open to the public. And particularly now when people are doing more things virtually, uh, it's important to make sure that for people who can't go to the state house in person for a hearing, they can attend virtually. We want folks to know what's happening at governor's council hearings and meetings. So yes, absolutely, they should be they should be broadcast. Um, and you mentioned that you've been a full-time public defender. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that experience has shaped your views on the criminal justice system. Well, I believe very deeply in the rule of law and in the constitution and in making sure that people have counsel to uphold their rights and represent represent them uh, and make sure that we have equal justice under the law. 
And I see a lot in our court system that I think is working incredibly well. I mean, the system of providing counsel for people who can't afford their own attorney when there is a risk of jail time is something we are doing incredibly right. There are a lot of wonderful people working in the court system, defense attorneys, but also prosecutors too, who are aware of the circumstances of the people who come before them. And so they're able to treat them with compassion and insight and provide them with support to make their lives the way they want them to be. But there are other folks who don't understand those things. Um, I think it's particularly difficult for someone to be a judge who has never been a defense attorney, because one of the things that you do as a defense attorney, and it's one of the most wonderful and special things uh, about being a public defender is you have conversations with your clients um, that, that no one else is able to have. The attorney-client relationship is very privileged. And so your clients will tell you things that they might not tell other folks. And so you gain insights into their lives and the way they think. And I can tell you, and I want folks to know, um, that folks who are, who are in our criminal justice system are usually, almost always, very insightful about their lives and why they are in the situation they're in. They understand what has happened and how they got there, and they know what they need in order to get out and to lead a better life. And that's what they want. So the criminal justice system has the power to help those folks and to make it possible for them to lead the lives that anyone of good conscience would want them to lead. And so it's very possible for us to do much better than we're doing. So that's, that's where I come down on this. We can do much better. So I wanna be part of the process that helps us do much better. So you just said that you think it would be hard to be a good judge without having that defense experience. Would you have any kind of litmus test for judicial nominees, whether you're talking about a particular type of experience or a particular view on issues like abortion, for example? I do. I have I have three things uh, that I've identified as questions that I will ask absolutely every nominee. The first is, are they 100% pro-choice? Uh, now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade, it's essential that everyone working within the criminal justice system and in our court system is 100% pro-choice because we have, to we have to protect reproductive rights at absolutely every single level. And under the law in Massachusetts, if you want an abortion, but you're 15 or younger, then you need to have the consent of either one parent or one adult guardian. And if you can't get that, you have to go before a superior court judge for authorization. It is one out of every four minors who seeks an abortion in Massachusetts who goes before a superior court judge for authorization. So I will be absolutely certain that any nominee is 100% pro-choice before I vote yes. So just to clarify, yeah. if a judicial nominee says, for example, I'm a practicing Catholic, my religious beliefs make me pro-life, you will vote against that nominee because they are pro-life? No, the question is whether they will uphold our law. And if I have any doubts as to their ability to uphold the law, then I would have to vote no. So the litmus test is not their personal views on abortion no. so much as will they right. apply the law right. on abortion right. that way. Okay. So now I'll hear your other two. Your other two. My other two are, and this is because, and this is where my, you know, the benefit of my experience and my working in our court system every day comes in, which is that I see folks taken into custody more times than I can count for relapse. Folks who are on probation for a drug-related offense and they're ordered to remain drug and alcohol-free, 
and for whatever reason they can't. And so they are then in violation of their probation and they're taken into custody. It is expensive, it doesn't work, and it makes recovery harder. So we've got to make sure that all of our judges and our parole board members respect the science of addiction and are prepared to work to support recovery. The, the fact is we know what helps recovery. I mean, there is medication-assisted treatment available. We know that when people have the support they need, then their recovery goes well. And my experience in working with folks suffering from a substance use disorder is that relapse occurs when whatever, whatever fortress they have built to defend themselves from their addiction has had a break, something has happened. And what you need to do, rather than punishing those folks, is figure out where the break occurred and make it stronger. I just had a client recently who had had a relapse and I said, you know, people relapse when they're in pain and it's true. It's when they are in pain and when the pain is too severe for them to tolerate on their own, that's when they relapse. So to punish people for being in so much pain that they relapsed is the absolutely worst thing that we can do. So what would you be looking for in a judge in terms of how they address opioid addiction and addiction more broadly? Well, we had an issue in the trial courts, in the drug courts, where there were judges who were prohibiting defendants from taking physician prescribed medication like Suboxone and Vivitrol. We've got to make sure that nominees don't have the view that medication assisted treatment is somehow not as good as going on your own because the science teaches us that that's not the case. And we've got to, we've got to have a system where it's possible for people with a substance use disorder to get the treatment that they need when they need it so that when they're having a crisis, it's easier for them to get the support they need than to go out and get their drug of choice, whatever it is. If it's easier for them to get the treatment that they need, then it's much more likely that they will do it. And I just wanna reiterate again, punishing people for relapse is absolutely the worst thing we can do. We've gotta we've got give folks support, not punishment. So that's two, what's your third question? My third is they have to be anti-racist. We, if you look at the numbers of how we incarcerate in Massachusetts, so we incarcerate about 275 people out of every 100,000. And that makes us one of the highest jurisdictions in the world. The United States is, of course, the highest jurisdiction in the world, but we are way ahead of England and France and Canada and Portugal. So that 275 figure, that's out of every 100,000 people in Massachusetts. For Blacks, it's 1,500 out of every 100,000. For Hispanics, it's 928 out of every 100,000. For whites, it's 241. And for Native Americans, it's 981 out of every 100,000. Clearly, there is systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And so we have to make sure that all nominees are anti-racist, that they're gonna be able to identify racism when they see it, and they're gonna take affirmative steps to stop it. And what does that mean practically? What kind of steps should a judge be taking to eliminate racism from the system, given, as you've pointed out, that there are racial disparities at every single level of the criminal justice system? Well, this is where experience working with the population that comes before our criminal judges comes into play. You know, we've got to make sure that people are not judging people based on their appearance or basing their race 
our, our law provides equal treatment under the law. So you've got to look at whether people are really prepared to provide equal treatment under the law or whether they have some vestiges of racism within themselves or just a lack of knowledge that makes it impossible for them to fairly judge folks. And I think you need to look at the history of nominees. What work did they do before then? What awareness have they demonstrated? Have they taken proactive steps to combat racism within their organizations and within their communities? And one area where this also arises is in the juvenile court. I mean, if you look at the foster care system, Latinos in particular um, are particularly overrepresented in the foster care system. And there's been a lot of talk about bias in terms of how, for example, young Black girls are treated, um, you know, getting kicked out of school for certain attitudes or for wearing their hair a certain way. Right. How do you bring this anti-racist activism to the juvenile court? And how do you address some of these disparities at that level before people end up in the school to prison pipeline? I think it's the same, I think it's the same way. It's, it's looking at the nominees and what they have done before they were a nominee, whether they have demonstrated an awareness and a commitment uh, to combat racism and to see what they have done we can all say the right things. And ultimately with nominees, it goes far beyond that. And it goes far beyond whether they have good intentions, whether they have a good work ethic, whether they're a good person. It's whether they really have the qualifications in the expertise to do the job. And that includes being anti-racist. Staying on the theme of juveniles, you've talked on your website about the need to address juvenile brain development. Yes. The fact that kids' brains are not making decisions in the same way that adults are. What type of breaks should judges be giving teenagers who commit criminal offenses? And how would you like to see the juvenile justice system change in this regard? Well, I wanna make sure that all the people who are judging children uh, and young and emerging adults do understand and respect the science of child development and understand that brains are not fully formed until we're 25 years old and that young and emerging adults are closer to children in terms of development than they are to 25 year olds. There is a big breakdown uh, in hot cut between when someone is in what's called hot cognition, which means they're in a heightened emotional state and when they're in cold cognition. And for younger folks, for children, young and emerging adults, when they're in hot cognition, when they are feeling a lot of feelings and it's in the heat of the moment, they are simply not capable of making the same judgment calls than an older person would be, that someone who's older 25. So we've got to make sure we're not evaluating people who are 13 the way we evaluate people who are 35. And again, just as with people suffering from a substance use disorder, we've got to make sure that we are putting systems in place to help them move forward. Simply punishing people doesn't work. It doesn't deter and it doesn't rehabilitate. It only traumatizes and trauma is never therapeutic. We need to have a criminal justice system and a court system that is helping people so that by the time they leave, they're in a better position than they were when they came in. And there is clearly a difference between the juvenile court system and the adult court system, but how do you handle that 18, 19, 20, 21 year old that commits a criminal offense under our laws is then in the adult criminal justice system? Would you want to see judges treating them differently than a 26, 27, 28 year old? I would, and I don't think that people that, I don't think 18, 21, 22 year olds uh, should be judged the same way that we judge people who are, who are over 25. And I can tell you from having worked with children that 
they will often present as though they understand what's happening to them and their circumstances. But it doesn't mean that they do. And speaking personally, I can look back to my own teenage years, which were disastrous. And I was dealing with a lot of bullying and sexual harassment in school. And I just, I couldn't cope. I stayed home and read books instead. And I had to deal with people telling me that I was bad. And I didn't, I didn't understand what was happening to me. I couldn't defend myself. So it's really important that everybody who's working in our core system understand that you can't rely on children to defend themselves, even when they're working with an attorney. We really need to give them as much support and understanding and compassion as we can. What does that look like? Does it look like diversion? Does it look like lower penalties for wraparound services? What do you do? I think it, I think it looks like diversion. I think it looks like not shaming. Um, I got in trouble with a juvenile court justice years ago because he used to he used to yell at the children who appeared before him in court. Uh, and every time their parents were unable to pay a fine or a fee, like a, like a monthly probation fee, he would take them into custody. It was horrible. And I remember sitting there in court and thinking to myself, what kind of a lawyer are you? You're just sitting here. So one day I stood up and I said, you know, this is really not how you should be conducting yourself. Um, he didn't like that. And I, I was somehow by amazing coincidence, I never appeared before him again. But there were people in the courtroom at that time, court officers and other attorneys who really appreciate what I had to because somebody had to stand up to him. So what I'm saying is my professional experience is that there are judges, the, the stuff that I'm saying, frankly, sounds basic to me, like everybody should know this, but a lot of people don't. They don't. They shame children. They raise their voices. And I also, by the way, when representing children, I would always make a point of telling the court what was really good about the kid. You know, he takes care of his brother every day. He's a really good basketball player. He loves math, whatever it is, because for children to go into court is a traumatic and terrifying experience. And you need you need to give them as much support as you can. And while you are perhaps by necessity addressing some issue that needs to be addressed, you really need to make sure that you you give them the message that you understand that they are children they're not being held to the same standards as adults. And especially with children, you never, never know what they're dealing with at home. And my experience in working with children is that the overwhelming majority of them, and maybe even all of them, I'm inclined to say all of them, are doing much better than we have any reason to expect them to. And so I believe that we should reinforce that. Let them know all the things that they're doing right. That's great. And then figure out where they need help and give them help. You mentioned this issue of probation, parole fees. Um, the yeah. legislature is actually right now considering eliminating probation and parole fees, as well as juvenile bail fees. Uh, would you like to see more court fees abolished? And if so, how do we fund the system? Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm a public defender, so I represent people who don't have money. And I know, um, also from personal experience, having literally starved my way through college as a single mother, I know what it's like to have to choose between putting gas in the car and food on the table. And a lot of people just don't understand that if you have no money, $20, $40, $50 is a lot of money. And it's wrong, it's antiquated. We should be far beyond having people in custody or having them stay in the criminal justice system longer than they would have simply because they don't have money. And especially when it comes to children, 
because the issue there is not whether the child has money, but whether the parent has money. It's completely unconscionable to treat children differently depending upon whether their parents have money or not. I know this is a bit out of the purview of the governor's council, but it's related. Uh, the legislature is also talking about passing a moratorium on new prison construction. Mm. And a big reason for this is the women's prison in Framingham is mm. just outdated and dilapidated. Um, there's been a lot of talk about replacing it, but some progressive activists have said, you know, no, we don't want to replace prisons. We just want to stop building new prisons and decarcerating, you know, incarcerating far fewer people. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand? Should there be a moratorium in prisons? What do you do about a facility like Framingham? I frankly don't know enough about the specifics of the Framingham prison, though I find it completely believable that it is a facility that, you know, should be a, a lot better than it is. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are folks who are going to be in our prisons. The question is, what kind of a facility do they have? Is the prison supporting them and putting them in, better, in a better position when they leave? Or is it just traumatizing them? And if it's a terrible facility, um, it is probably traumatizing them more than we want them to. So, but I would say that I'm really glad that you raised the issue of decarceration because I have a stunning number for you on the subject of commutations because the governor's council approves commutations and pardons. And I want you and all your listeners to know that in the last 20 years, 20 years, there have been 475 applications for a commutation and two have been issued, two. So I have no way of knowing what, how many of those applications were deserving of a commutation, but I find it impossible to believe that the number wasn't much higher than two. And we really need to be getting folks out of prison who shouldn't be in prison anymore. And we are failing miserably in that endeavor. And if you are a governor's counselor, you will be responsible for approving nominations to the parole board, which makes those decisions. What will you be looking for in a parole board nominee? I want to make sure that they are receptive to commutations and pardons, that they have the professional expertise and experience to be good at judging whether someone is appropriate for a commutation and pardon and whether they're committed to doing everything that we can to get folks out of prison who just shouldn't be in prison anymore. And you can learn a lot more on commonwealthmagazine.org. Governor's Council candidate Mara Dolan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much, Shira. It was wonderful to be here. Take care.